0: Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Renee Coronado. And with me today, as always, it's Tim Muirhead. Hey, Tim.
1: Hey, Renee. It's not really as always anymore, is it? We I know. Seem to I say that same... almost
0: as a joke <laughs> at this
1: point. <laughs> it used to be true for the first 30 episodes, maybe, but <laughs> last 30, it's been a little different.
0: It's been the parallel podcast.
1: Yeah, that's what happens when two people have kids. Yeah. Not together, but... we have separate kids.
0: Our kid, my kid is my kid and your kid is your kid. For sure. That's what we're going to tell them their whole lives. Yes.
1: They'll never know.
0: (laughs) Um, So today, at least we're together. So that's awesome. And we're going to do a little mailbag action. So, you know, we get some questions over time and we encourage people to email the show at at info at com. And, you know, a lot of times we just respond directly in the emails to people when they have thoughts or or suggestions and stuff. But today we're going to take a few of those and we're going to do a little mailbag episode.
1: Yeah, for sure. We really appreciate it when people reach out to us. And a lot of these questions are things that make us think. And uh, we appreciate that when we have to think about what we're going to say. So... Yep, before we get going with the mailbag, I just want to send a big shout-out to Victor Zotman. He will be the one editing this episode. He's one of our listeners, and he volunteered to do that, and we really appreciate that. If anyone else wants to volunteer to cut an episode for us, it is always appreciated, and we have some cool episodes coming up that we're going to need some help with. So reach out to us at info at And uh, this one, as I said, is edited by Victor Zotman. You can uh, see what he's up to. He's a correspondent for DesigningSound.org, who we always say you should go check out everything they do. They're super cool. You can follow him on Twitter, at Victor Zotman. That's with two Ts. And uh, his website is VictorZotman.com. So go check that out. Thank you again, Victor. Okay, our first question is from chip brandstetter from paducah kentucky which is just fun to say paducah come on Uh, he says i'm a filmmaker sound dude from paducah kentucky and i'm glad i discovered your podcast i just wrapped the sound effects on a horror film about a killer running loose in a skating rink and i've always believed you shouldn't be limited by your gear and at the same time i wonder if there are any software options out there for sound design that pack a punch and at the same time are inexpensive I've come to the sound design world later than most. I love it and have won some awards, but I want to take my work to the next level. So, is there anything out there that's cheap, inexpensive, or however you word it? Just a thought. Let me know what you think. So, Chip, you're looking for cheap and somewhat inexpensive sound design software. Renee, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: I mean, the the obvious starting point for me is Reaper, right? Uh, you can you can get the full version of it without paying any money. You, you pay them a little bit of money, and you feel better about yourself um, as you as you use it, but that's just a straight, fully functional DAW that's got tons of scripting stuff in it, in addition to all of the stock plugins that it has with it. I mean, if you just if you take something like Reaper and really wrap your head around the things that you can do with it, which admittedly, I'm still at the very beginning stages of, but I understand um, the capabilities of that particular software. Um, if you really spend some time in it, you can do some pretty amazing stuff. Uh, it's got pitch and time warping in it. It's got all, all the, you know, fundamental EQ things that you need to do. I know it's got some delays and verbs and stuff like that in it. Um, that's your basic toolbox to get started in a lot of sound design. Anything come to your mind there, Tim?
1: Well, the thing that really comes to my mind is the fact that like when I went out on my own, I think it was 2003, I had to get a Pro Tools system, which admittedly wasn't like it was in the nineties where it was like $30,000, but it was It was a bit of a chunk of change. And then I had to get Soundminer, which was uh, over a grand unto itself. And now you can get Reaper and Soundly, and you're pretty much in the same space for very little amount of money coming out of the gate. Because Soundly, it doesn't do everything that Soundminer can do, but I played around with it. And for either free or I think $14.99 a month, you can do quite a lot with that. And that, in many ways, I'm against the idea of the subscription software, but. For that kind of thing, if it's fourteen ninety nine a month compared to dropping, you know, a couple hundred dollars at once, to, when you're getting started, that's pretty pretty good trade off. So those two together, uh, you're you're getting your foot in the door and you're doing pretty pro work with that stuff. And the other thing that came to my mind quickly for inexpensive sound design stuff is iPad
0: synths. That's exactly where I was going to go.
1: Yeah, iPad synths, like for not much money, you can get some seriously cool stuff going on. And uh, I haven't, I've only dipped my toe in that world. I only have a few of them, but they are fun to play with. And they also kill awesome time on the subway.
0: You know, if if you put a, put together a budget of about thirty to fifty bucks for iPad noisemakers, I mean, for sure, you can really stack up a whole bunch of pretty amazing stuff uh, in a big hurry uh, with with just an iPad or even an Android tab, whatever kind of tablet you have. But there's, I think, iPad has a lot of the better sounding stuff out there. Although, you know, to be fair, I haven't spent a whole lot of headspace on the Android side, but I'm sure there's a lot there too. But yeah, just the nature of the prices on app stores right now for for tablets. It pushes the prices of what are very capable, very cool sounding synths just down into the, into the dirt. Um, there's just a lot of stuff you can do with that. Um, the other thing I would say is, as a sound designer, I, I like to use microphones. You know, if you have a simple, straightforward $30 to $50 microphone, at least you're in the game. And it's, it's amazing in, with modern technology what you can get out of a $30 to $50 yeah. microphone these days.
1: Referred to a few episodes ago for your Renee's interview with Paul Verostek for uh, what lots of talk about what you can do with cheaper gear and uh, how to use cheaper microphones and then work your way up from there.
0: Yeah. You know, Chip had a comment that he gets analysis paralysis whenever he starts doing homework on what to do next. And the the long story short that Paul and I kind of got to on that was stop and really think about what it is that you are trying to record when you're talking mm-hmm. about buying microphones specifically and about how those things propagate sound through space, and then try and tailor your rig around the majority of what that's gonna end up being. Um, in a lot of cases, that's gonna be a cardioid pencil condenser, <laughs> you know? Uh, that's just your fundamental building block. And, you know, Behringer, don't, don't let the brand names scare you off. Uh, you, you gotta get out there and, and at least get some get some sounds in. So, you know, you can get a Behringer mic for 30 bucks and, uh, and, and at least get started.
1: Everyone up in Canada here, eh? We all call it Beringer. No, uh, yeah, Beringer. Behr- it's the, f- the French-Canadian accent coming in, I guess. I don't know.
0: Uh, I guess it's a German company, though, isn't it? Yeah,
1: I'm not saying we're right. <laughs> I'm just saying <laughs> when Canadians <laughs> see things worded that way, we, we say it that way.
0: I guess I'd have to say it more aggressively to say it in German.
1: Beringer. Beringer. I think I might have gone more Australian than German there. I'm not good with accents. That was horrible. That's probably going to get cut out. Uh,
0: No, you have to leave it in.
1: Okay, I'll leave it in. Uh, Okay, let's move on to the next question. Yeah. Okay, this next one is from A.D. Lees. Hey, Tim and Renee, I've been listening to the Tonebenders podcast for the last few weeks, and I have a long commute to and from work and have flown through the episodes very quickly, and I must say it's an amazing show. It inspires and excites me to go out recording. I've been thinking about something Renee mentioned a while back referring to Google Alerts, and I was oh, yeah. wondering, what alerts do you have set up, i.e., what keywords do you use in order to get the best results? I'm from the UK, and I've never heard of any local demolition scheduled in my area. Thanks. Keep up the amazing work. So I think she...
0: She's referencing my Google alerts that I have set up to warn me when implosions are at least advertised or at least discussed in the news um, when they're imploding buildings around. Uh, I can't remember if I've talked about it on the podcast or not. but You did. You talked
1: about it in the episode about you recording the Dallas implosion and building them.
0: So, you know, in a broad sense, when when companies do implosions of big buildings, they don't put out notices, that, well, I guess they don't advertise it to the public, because they don't want to draw a crowd for liability reasons. Um, but when you get to a certain scale, like, for example, the Texas Stadium implosion, um, they kind of have to, and so then they make a big event of it, because they have to, they have to s- seal off a big enough perimeter um, to where it's going to be disruptive. So people need to know, right? So I will set a Google News alert to alert me of those types of things. And I also have Google News alerts set up to alert me of when people are planning protests and that type of stuff. Although, to be fair, I need to continue to revise my searches because some protests have slipped by me without hitting my news alert. Um, but broadly
1: protests.
0: Well, you know what it is, is people organize that stuff on Facebook and I'm not on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't, um, it manages to like fly right by me because, because it exists 100% in Facebook and, and not out in the broader internet, um, for protests and gatherings and stuff like that. So i got to figure out a way around that. Um, but in a broader sense, the way you do it is you, you go to the you know, Google news website and you can set up an alert there. And there's an art, there's a whole art and science to doing Google searches to yield very specific results, um, specifically using the Boolean characters and using quotation marks and that type of stuff. Um, so I use the plus sign and then my city Dallas in order to only yield results that contain, that positively contain the word Dallas in them. Um, so if they don't contain the word Dallas, then they don't. They get filtered out of my search, right? So that means that I don't, actually, I don't even get an email every day from that news alert because it's specific enough. Um, so what the news alerts do is they search all of Google News and they send you a new email every time it gets a new hit, like at the end of the day. So if it, you know, if one day goes by and it, and it hits like 15 things, then I'll get one email with 15 links to 15 articles. So I have my search parameters set tight enough to where I'm not getting emails about stuff that I don't care about, but I do get emails about things that I do care about. So the specific things that I'm trying to get ahead of with regards to news events are building implosions and public demonstrations so that I can get out into crowds if there's gonna be a public demonstration of any kind. Um, So what I'll do is I'll do a plus sign and then Dallas and then in quotation marks protest and a plus sign and then Dallas and then in quotation marks implosion. And then I'll do other kind of variations of that, um, to be imploded, uh, implosion planned, stuff like that. So that I, anytime there's a press release or a news release about any of that kind of stuff, I at least get an email um, as soon as those type of press releases come out. At the moment, I've really only got those two kind of broad categories set up as Google news alerts for me, because um, those are the things that are broadly what's going to trigger me to go out and, and get the microphones out and go try and record things that I may that I might not already know about.
1: Yeah, maybe we can ask listeners to uh, send us in anything else that they've got Google Alerts set up for, any other kind of sounds. Because it's a brilliant way to uh, alert you and let you get ahead of things, but it only works for very specific kind of things that I'm having trouble thinking of more things, more events that they would work well for. But yeah, I'm sure there's lots of cities that have very specific things that happen in that city that you could work with.
0: Like, well, yeah. So for like example, you know, Seattle being a port town, there might be you know a whole bunch of um, you know nautical activities that you yeah, might exactly. want to be,
1: horns or something.
0: Exactly. Um, the, the thing about news alerts is that it's it's about it's about things that are public and sometimes that attract a lot of people, right? And so it has to be from a sonic perspective. As far as being interesting, it has to basically be able to incorporate a lot of people into the sound of the recording in a broad sense. That's why I kind of just own that all the way and go towards um, crowds and protests and stuff like that, as opposed to, say, rare vehicles or, you know... Uh, helicopters or anything else like that because news alerts about that stuff a it's not going to be anticipatory it's not going to it's going to i want news alerts that are telling me about things that are planned for the future as opposed to about things that have happened in the past obviously (laughs) right because that's the other tricky kind of the limiting factor about news alerts um but with that said you know within those couple of things um planned events that that incorporate people and then incorporate press releases, um, news alerts are a really good way to, to at least give yourself a heads up that these things are happening.
1: Yeah. That question is referring to episode 32, where you talked about the implosion of a Xerox building. So if anyone wants to go back and hear, uh, what brought that question on, go back to episode 32 of tone benders. There you go. You get to hear the building go down. Boom. Okay, our next question is from James Gallagher. Hey, guys, I love the podcast, specifically the sound design demos you've done, as well as when you get nitty-gritty with things like templates. I'd love to hear you guys discuss tackling large projects all alone. For example, being responsible for the entire soundtrack of a 30-minute short film. What is your order of operations chipping away at it? Tips, tricks, time-saving techniques? If you've already discussed this, let me know. Thanks so much, Mike James Gallagher. Well,
0: we're about to discuss it now, so here you go. I mean... I have thoughts on this. Yes, you do. I'm <laughs> yeah. sure. I'm sure you do too. Um, yeah. Right now, so I was I was literally texting with Tim um, whenever the Tom Fleischman episode came out because he he spoke to me as a mixer. I, I find mixing to be very very difficult. Um, just mentally, mixing is taxing on me, and it's hard. And one of the things that that Fleischman said in, in the interview that that Teresa did with him was that he feels that, that in any given moment, one thing needs to be sitting up on top. And the reason I even start there is because I do feel broadly that when you're building your elements for a soundtrack and you're building everything up, if you have a clear vision in your mind of where you're going... Then that can, can, um, then that can influence and dictate your decisions to a large degree, and it can make things easier and, and make decisions more clear. If you're looking in the broad context of a mix and saying, I'm clearly going to hear somebody talking here, or, or I'm clearly going to not hear somebody talking here, um, then that helps you decide whether you're going to even cut sounds into a project or not. Right. I also really love his approach of dialogue first, mixing and in a lot of cases especially when you talk about short films is especially when you're talking about projects where there is a lot of talking or even moderate amount of talking um the dialogue really is your your anchor point if the dialogue's not your anchor point you gotta find something that is an anchor point um so in the context of like Mm. a stealth film where no one's talking and it's somebody walking around um your foley might be your anchor point um but, in you know, a lot of, you know, short films that are low budget films, they're, they're, they're about people uh, and they're about talking, right? And so first step in a broad sense, most of the time is handle that dialogue track, create a good, solid, stable anchor track around which you can make contextual decisions about how to do everything else, right? And so to create a good dialogue track, you got to start with the editorial, So you get all your takes in there, you smooth all all your ins and outs out, you smooth all of your your middle pieces where there's nobody talking and you got to keep your your ambiences and your room tones stable. You remove all the blemishes and you get your volume right happening, you get your EQ and your compression at least roughed in to where it's all going to play. And you have a nice solid anchor point that gives you context around which you can make the rest of your decisions. And, and, you know, that takes time because there's no context for anything else, right? You, you know, and you might have, you know, problems in the recordings and, you know, you're going to, you might have to go back into the sound rolls and pull alternate takes. And you might have some scenes that were recorded crappily and the ADR isn't done yet. And so you kind of have to set those aside. Um, and sometimes you might have some scenes that need ADR, but they're not going to get ADR because there's not budget or there's not availability. Sometimes that happens. Um, And so you have to work those dialogue tracks until they're as ready as they're going to get. And once those dialogue tracks are in place, then for me, at least, I try and get the BGFX up. Um, And BGFX is where you can do a lot of storytelling that is not necessarily captured on camera, right? So you can tell a lot of stories about the Mm -hmm. environment that the people are in. um, You can tell a lot of stories about the things that you're hearing that you may not necessarily be seeing. And then you can also do the utilitarian type of um, covering up of problems and things like that and just filling of space that you need to do sometimes with BGFX. Once the BGFX are in, then then from there, the Foley track needs to come together. Um, I do a lot of Foley recording. When it's just me, if it's a one-person gig... And you have to do Foley. I tend to do Foley in the control room. So I'll have a mic up in my control room and I'll have all a stack of props and I will have my, my picture in front of me and I'll have my Pro Tools rig in front of me and I'll have my headphones on and I will run down everything that I can run down in the control room. If there are things that I can't run down in the control room, if there's like footsteps that need to get done on a surface or body falls or things like that, I'll mark those and put them aside, and I might even cut those as spot effects, even if I record the the effect itself um, out in a foley room or a booth. But the vast majority of the prop foley and stuff that you know I'm manipulating with my hands and that type of stuff, I'll just do in the control room. And the control room is not as quiet as the booth, but if it's a one person gig, that's the that's the most efficient way for me personally to go about at least getting to the finish line on a job like that.
1: Have you used a PT Control on an iPad? I've not. It's pretty cool to. I've used it a couple times now. I just booted it up like a month ago, maybe for the first time, and uh, it's really good for kind of remote controlling the rig when you're in the uh, when you're in the booth trying to do some sounds. You can start and stop records and arm tracks and do very rudimental things from the iPad when you're not in the control room. And I found that, as I say, it's rudimental stuff. I think I think there's people who write quite cool macros for it, but I haven't got deep into that yet. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's like when I'm doing a, oh shit, it's 12 midnight and I got to get this done for 8 a.m. Okay. Grab the iPad, hit record from inside the booth and get some stuff done Foley wise that way.
0: I guess I'm fortunate in that my control room is quiet enough that, that I can put a mic up and I'm good. You know what I mean? In a lot of, in a lot of senses, I, I do have, you know, there's reflections in a, in a control room that you're not going to have in a, in a dead Foley space. But in a lot of cases, especially with interior stuff, the context of those reflections still makes sense. And what I'm finding is that when I'm cutting foley, I will tend to be editing my foley about at the same time. So I'll cut a take and I'll hate it, and I'll cut a take again and I'll hate it and again, and I'll cut a take again and I'll get something that I'm okay with, and then I'll edit it up to where it's like really locked in and sync, and then I'll move on. Right. So there's so I end up you know mousing and clicking a lot <laughs> as I'm as I'm cutting foley when it's just me by myself in my room. Um, yeah, that works great. It
1: it becomes a problem when, uh, dirt can fly. Like when you're dealing with things that can kick up dust and you don't want to be doing that in the control room, obviously.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If things are going to cause debris, then, then I got to mark them and and again, I'll mark it and then I'll just go perform some stuff and then I'll cut it back in basically as a sound effect, even though I'll, you know, um, even though in a, in a traditional sense, I would like to record something like that as Foley, um, when it's just a one person gig, I'll I'll mark those and I'll go record them and then I'll bring them back in. If it's something I, I can't perform with a prop like in the control room because of dirt.
1: <laughs> so, so once you've uh, finished your Foley footsteps pass?
0: Yeah, well, you know, the footsteps is one of those things to where I tend to, you know, just cut it in either mm-hmm. with a sampler or with a mouse in a lot of cases. And if I need to go record some steps, I'll do that and then I'll bring it back in and cut. Again, this is on a one person job. If I don't have, you know, if I if I don't have somebody that I can that can record me walking or or that I can record someone else walking I find it I find it to be more efficient to go walk some stuff or go find some stuff from my library that I and actually I also and I mentioned this in my my conversation that I had with Paul Vorostek uh a lot of the footstep recordings that I have that I really like and I like the texture of them I like the way they cut in are things that I actually go outside and record um so you know I like hearing you know Again, period specific and whatever, but I like hearing the sound of the world around my recordings of footsteps. In particular, they just they sound more real when they're out on actual textures in the in the world as opposed to um, reproduced textures in the studio.
1: That actually probably makes more sense in the context of this question too, because. If you're doing your own gig, uh, everything for a 30 minute short film, there's a good chance you don't have a control room and a giant booth that you can do Foley in. So you might have to be going out into the yard to be doing the Foley and such like that.
0: Yeah. And you can't be afraid to go do that. I mean, I really enjoy the sound of a lot of the stuff that I get when I'm not in the studio, when I'm out in the world, even though, you know, it's not the quietest environment, but man, you can get away with a whole lot of noise in a whole lot of situations. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: when do you do your hard effects? Uh, Hard effects come after Foley for me
0: with a couple of specific exceptions. And that would be if I have some heavily designed effects that I need to get sign off on. So, you know, if there's a specifically, if there's a particularly interesting like blaster or ship or something like that. I'll I'll run that before I do my Foley, just so I can get some iterations in the can and also so that I can get those out to my director and my director can say yay or nay and that kind of stuff. Um, in a broad sense, I try and knock out the stuff that is more difficult first, specifically so that I have to live with it longer. And what happens is, as I live with things, I inevitably continue to revise them and revise them. And if in the process I were to put the more difficult things later, mm-hmm. then those revisions would kind of never happen.
1: So after hard effects, you're going into the mix room, or
0: yeah, and also you know you, you can't leave out the music editorial. Um, and and again, in a lot of cases, it's a dance and it's project specific between when I'm putting hard effects in and when I'm putting um, all my music up against my voice, because sometimes if a music if the music cue is going to play a scene out. Then I'm going to cut in far fewer um, hard effects versus if the music is out and I need to really cover a lot of space, or if I have a lot of negative space which, with which to play. Um, and again, if we're talking more designy stuff, right? Yeah, but
1: you're also um, running on the assumption that you know what the music's going to be doing.
0: Right. And sometimes the music is totally sometimes the music is gonna come to me after I've started my heart effects anyway. And that, that decision gets dictated to me. But if I have control of it, I like to have the music context up in a lot of cases, um, before I really start making a lot of hard effects decisions. All of these are project specific and and the the overriding philosophy I have again is more difficult stuff first in context against my anchor. And my anchor is always my dialogue.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So do you do one-man, like within your work at Dallas Audio Post, are you doing one-man productions for the post or do you always involve everybody?
0: I mean, it's been a minute. <laughs> there, there are short films and stuff that are on our website that I did do basically by myself. Not 100% by myself, but you know, the budgets were not such that we could... Bring a whole bunch of people in. And sometimes they were slightly buddy deals or things like that. Um, and, and in those cases, I'm just trying to push myself and test my own abilities. Um, and so sometimes, even though I do have, you know, even though I do work with other talented people, I'm trying to figure out where I'm at on a specific uh, technical skill set or aesthetic skill set. And so I'll just selfishly um, <laughs> take it and own it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, with the with the director's blessing, and um, you know, so there's there's a film up uh, on our portfolio site at Dallas Audio Post called Crescendo that basically I did 100 percent of, with the exception of recording some of the foley. Um, I performed the foley, but I wasn't, but I didn't record it. Um, and with the exception of obviously doing the score, right? So the score came to me. Um, but that one was was a, a very similar situation to what this question was, which is. It came to me as picture in an OMF and time. and and yeah, I pretty much handled all of it. And I was happy with how it came out. You know, you when you're doing when you're doing work by yourself, it's never going to be as good as when you're collaborating with people that are good. Um, two and three and four heads always being better than one, and other people always having perspective that can complement your own. And in this particular case, my my coworker Brad, you know, even though he he basically only recorded the Foley for me and and I did the, all the rest of it, I did still come back to him and bounce a lot of ideas off of him and ask his opinion on a bunch of things and and that actually greatly influenced the soundtrack as well even though he wasn't, you know, getting his hands dirty doing a lot of the cutting and stuff, he was still giving his opinion back to me about hey, what about this, try that, what if you added this kind of stuff, etc. Um so That's a great advantage I have. If you, if you don't have the advantage of being able to, you know, walk into the next room and say, Hey, what do you think of this? That's why these communities are so important, um, with regards to people that you meet on Twitter and people that you meet, you know, the people that you and I meet through the podcast, et cetera, that, you know, you can take a mix and you can, again, with a director's blessing, bounce things off of people and say, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And if it's people that you trust and if you develop a community of people that you trust, then those opinions can come back and they can improve your work. When you're working by yourself, that's a super, super important thing that you have to be able to develop in order to do work by yourself that lives up to the standards that you're that mm-hmm. you're actually capable of. In
1: my world, I'm mostly working in animation. So when I'm doing something uh, from head to toe, dialogue isn't such an issue for me because it's all been recorded in a booth for the most part. So what I like to do is the grounding. It's not quite the same way you mean it with dialogue as you're grounding, but I like to get the, the, the ambience in and kind of ground that dialogue into the scene because without the ambience, it's just kind of floating nebulous words and the ambiences can really with animation make the dialogue come alive. And I like ambiences for animation because you can really go at it if you want. Like you can bring in lots of ideas that maybe in real world stuff you're limited by. That's too crazy. But in animation, you can really add in lots of weird animals in the background and such. And then, of course, in episodic animation, all of those great details get squashed by the score that goes from start to finish and never stops. But that's another story. (laughs) But yeah, so when I'm doing something on my own for animation, yeah, I always start with the ambiences, and then uh, I do the footsteps, and then I do the hard effects. And then I find with the work I've done in animation, I almost never get the music until basically we go to mix, and that's certainly not ideal, but... Uh, it tends to be the way it goes from my experience. So it's hard to uh, figure that out. And then in the mix, you gotta, what I like to do is do a dialogue pass with uh, dialogue, feet, and ambience. So I do all those together. Yeah. Then I bring in the music, do all that, and then I bring in the, all the effects and do all that. So uh, the uh, mixer that mixes most of the stuff that I sound supervised, that's the technique he uses. And I've kind of adopted it myself. And uh, I don't do a lot of mixing, but when I do, Uh, that's how I go about it, because I've watched him do it a million
0: times that way. Man, it must be nice to sit and watch somebody mix.
1: It is awesome, but it's also a thing where with the world that I'm very, very entrenched in right now is episodic animation. For the last maybe nine years, it's been... 90% maybe higher of the work that I do and uh, some of it has been the same series for a lot of that I did 191 episodes of one series I've done I just finished episode 100 of the series that I'm mainly working on right now Uh, and The timing doesn't always allow you to sit and spend a full day in the mix room because a lot of times i got to be cutting the next episode that's going to be mixing not too far in the future. So it is great to sit down and uh, watch the mix, but it's not always a luxury that you're afforded. And uh, sometimes the mixers don't want you there because (laughs) they they start (laughs) getting tired of you going, there's an effect there that I can't hear, you know. I really worked hard cutting that, but the music's squashing everything. But anyway, I'm not. I, I sound like I'm bitter about the musician. The musicians on some of the shows I've worked on have won great awards. They're great musicians. It's just the tug of war of uh, trying to get everything heard. And you know what? The the one thing that I almost prefer is when they go straight music and pull out effects entirely. I I almost prefer that to just like not have it than have effects just bubbling up enough that you can barely hear it. Right. So, but anyway, that that that's how I kind of tackle the animation thing when I'm doing it on my own. But. Uh, For the most part, I I don't have to do it on my own right now. I've got a team that's one person's cutting dialogue, one person's cutting feet, one person's cutting music, and one person is cutting ambiences, and then I'm cutting all the hard effects.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are things you learn for sure by by being in that situation where you do have to do it all yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, you learn context and you learn about when I cut this sound in... I'm gonna to have to do something to it to make it right in the mix. And so that affects what you even cut in in the first place. It's a little bit like the analogy that I use sometimes with uh, with film people is people that shoot film versus people that cut film. And if you get in the edit room and you do a lot of cutting, then you recognize what kind of coverage you need to have on the set. <laughs> and you know, And what kind of stuff you're not leaving mm-hmm. out. It's a similar thing as you mix and mix and mix you start to recognize what's what's actually passing muster in the mix and what's not. And that affects your sound editorial on, on the front end, the more and more you do the back end work of the mixing. Um, and again, I find mixing to be incredibly difficult. And I'm so happy anytime I, I actually am able to produce something that I'm happy with. Um, just because it's, I feel like I really have to wrestle things sometimes to make them sound the way that I want them to sound. But, you know, I'm, I'm obviously measuring myself against, um, people that are still way better than me. (laughs) So there's that.
1: (laughs) I'm actually interested to hear somebody like when I started cutting specifically animation, but anything else, uh, I read somewhere, it's probably Mix Magazine, uh, where someone said that they always start with the ambiences. And that kind of got in my head, and that's how I do it. And I think that's kind of a standard way that people do go about it. I wonder if there are people out there that say, screw that and tackle it a different way. Maybe I shall tackle it a different way sometime soon. I don't know. I've been doing it the same way for a long time now. Maybe that's not the right thing. Now I'm starting to think about it. You got up in my head, person who asked this question. (laughs) Mike James Gallagher. Sometimes you got to
0: change it up. (laughs) Sometimes you got to change it up just to to recalibrate yourself to... uh to those things that you believe versus those things that you don't, you know? Yeah, for sure. Moving on.
1: Okay, we're moving on to the next question. This one, we're going to kind of make an amalgamation of a bunch of questions that we've got. It's basically, uh, how do you get your foot in the door? Is a demo reel actually worth going through the effort to make? And uh, if you're working from home, what's the best way to interact with professionals? Yeah. So those are broad questions. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So let's figure it out. Uh, Well, first off, there's a a little article that's on the Tonebender's website called Breaking Into the Industry. Uh, And and the reason we we have that up there is because we get that question a lot. And it's about, you know, how, you know, if you're coming from school or if you're coming from a different industry, um, how do you go? What's the first steps you take to break in? And the broad strokes are, at least from my opinion, start working. And the way you start working is you jump on Craigslist, um, not mandy.com anymore, that's changed a little bit, but you go find projects um, in places where they're publicly listed. You know, you can go to schools, you can you know, film schools, animation schools, that type of stuff. There's a lot of projects out there that need audio that not may not necessarily have budget for audio. Well, when you're first breaking in, those are the ones that you want to go find um, because you... And, and Paul Verostick and I discussed this also in a couple episodes back, but when you're starting out at things, you're not good at them yet. You can't expect to be good at them yet. You have to go through the process of learning. And a really good way to go through the process of learning is to have a, have a finite project with an endpoint in front of you that you can sit and grind on and work and hand back and show to people, right? And the advantage of that also is that you develop your network of people, you meet people, you learn your own workflows, you learn how to collaborate with other people, which in this industry is just super, super important. Even if you're just collaborating with the picture editor, you're never running an entire project 100% front to back all by yourself. You're always working with people. So you have to learn how to communicate with people, how to hand files over, how to get files back, the whole collaborative process, right? Um, and you're learning all of that on top of learning the, um, the skills and techniques of sound design, field recording, dialogue, editing, and mixing, um, music, editing, final mix, broadcast, mixing, whatever, you know, it's a lot to learn and it can all take years. And so with that said, the, the best way to, to get the most bang for your buck on a day to day basis is to go find projects that are interesting to you that look like they're done by reasonable human beings and. Pick one and dive in and give it everything you've got and expect to not be amazing at first, but as you do more and more of them, you will start to get really, really good. And as you get good, people will start having to pay you. And, and that's kind of the, the meandering road in that a lot of people are able to take. Um, sometimes that, that means that you end up being a freelancer. Sometimes you get hired on somewhere. Sometimes you discover things about your profession and about your industry that you didn't know existed and they, they send you off in a different direction. Sometimes new technologies like VR and AR pop up midway through your career and you can go specialize in that type of stuff. Um, but long and short, seek out projects that are interesting to you, that you're willing to devote your heart and soul and time and resources to and seek out people that look like they're going to finish and deliver products. And um, when those things line up, take your opportunities, dive in, keep your day job until until you can start paying your bills with with other means, um, but always be focused on doing work and having work in front of you that needs to be done. Yeah, something you
1: that. alluded to that I think is really important is the idea that when you're finished film school or you decide you're going to become a sound designer if you decide to skip skip, skip school, Is that what you think you want to do at that point might not be what you end up doing or what you love. Because when I finished film school, well, first of all, I went to film school thinking that I wanted to be a director. And then once I started doing sound for everybody's films, I realized that I wanted to do sound for film. So if I hadn't gone to film school, I never would have realized that that set me on this path. And then once I finished film school, I thought I wanted to mix. And then I tried to do that for a few years, and I had some success in it, but I found that I wasn't loving it the way I loved cutting sounds as much. So right. what you think you want to do when you're first stepping foot into this industry and get trying to get ahead, it might not be what you want to do because you haven't tried your hand at Foley yet, maybe. You might not have tried your hand at... Uh, synth design or dialogue editing like you have to get your fingers in all of these things which goes back to our previous question about doing a short film doing the whole thing is when you try everything you find out where you want to specialize or more importantly maybe you don't want to specialize there is this idea that you should work your way up to becoming like the head sound designer the lead mixer some people like doing everything, and they want to set up a shop and work on short films where they get to do everything, and they get to have their hand in every pie. The, you, you don't know where your career is going to lead yet when you first start out, and you have to have an open mind to figure out what part of this process you love, or if you do love any of it. And when you do fall in love with it, that kind of lets you start focusing and going in that direction.
0: Well, and the other side of it is, you know, people sometimes when they're trying to break in and when they're coming from outside industries or when they're coming from school and they don't know anybody in the industry yet, the question they ask is, well, how do I meet the people that can hire me and give me, give me jobs? And the answer is often those people aren't in a position to hire you yet. They're still learning just like you are. Um, so you have to go where people are at, um, it, on a, on a relative level to your skill set especially early on so you had to go find students and you have to go find you know people that are that are starting their careers just like you are and as your career um develops and and continues so will theirs and those people and you will have met and will have worked on projects and sometimes multiple projects over time and then at some point they've got clients those clients are paying them and then they're hiring you and and that's just how that ends up working
1: for sure The the other thing, if you're trying to talk to people who are already professionals in the industry and already making a career in it, when you want to interact with them, try and make it clear to them that there will be something in it for them. It can be something as small as you take them out for lunch, you know, because people that are professionals, there are more people wanting to do this work than there are actual jobs doing the work. So the people who are up a couple rungs on the ladder... They get lots of emails of people wanting to pick their brain and they can't let everyone, they don't time to talk to everybody. So if you can find a way to give them a reason to talk to you over someone else, that will give you a leg up. So you can offer to pay for lunch. You can even just show up with a coffee for them or a gift card for Starbucks, or whatever your city might uh, like as coffee places, but just find a way to separate yourself from the other twenty people who are asking to talk to them and pick their brain in for a chunk of their time so find a way to make sure that they're getting something out of the equation as well
0: yeah <clears throat> yeah, and the other thing I'll say is that honestly, there's only so much you can learn from talking to other people, especially relative to the amount you can learn by putting your hands on things and doing them yourself um, when you when you talk to other people, when you talk to professionals, if you have work that you've done that is ready for a critique, um, that will get you a whole lot more than um, broad, general, hypothetical based advice. And the reason I, I keep going back to that is the people that get really good at things are the people that spend time and effort and reps learning how to do things. And you don't need anyone else in the world to tell you, hey, put your hands on things and spend time and effort and reps learning how to do them. Um, you just have to get a project in front of you and you have to try things and and, the, and you have to try and fail and you have to figure out your own style and your own technique. Um, there are people out there that are just getting started that in five years will be doing things that I can't conceptualize. And so I, you know, this is not to say that I would have nothing to offer them in a conversation, but it is to say that, their learning path is going to diverge from the things that i already know right um because they're learning on on newer technologies and as the technologies are evolving and their aesthetics may be formed you know based on you know places they've traveled that i'd never been etc etc and in the end you have to be comfortable with figuring out who you are as an artist and as a technician and as a human being um to do your own best work you can't you can't acquire that from anybody else that has to come from your own work
1: it's the classic uh quote from ira glass of this american life about how you you have to develop your style your uh what's the word he used we'll edit this part out i love his
0: quote so the i I, let me look it up here you can literally google ira glass quote (laughs) and it will be all over everything so here it is uh As I pull it up here, here's the, here's the famous Ira Glass quote, print it out, put it like engrave it into wood and put it (laughs) in your studio. Here's what Ira Glass says. Nobody tells this to people who are beginners. I wish somebody told me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste, but there's this gap. For the first couple of years you make stuff and it's just not that good. It's trying to be good. It has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase and they quit because they can't do. and i'm I'm I'm, I'm editorializing here on IRA's quote. People quit because they can't they can't do the work with their hands that they can hear in their minds. Going back to the IRA quote, most mm-hmm. people I know who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have this special thing that we want it to have. We all go through this. And if you were just starting out or you are still in this phase, you got to know it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is a lot of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week you will finish one story. It's only by going through a volume of work that you will close that gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. And I took longer to figure that out than just about anyone I've ever met. It's going to take a while. It's normal to take a while. You just got to fight your way through. End quote, Ira Glass. Print it, put it up on your screen, make that your screensaver, especially early on. And, and I've, <laughs> I've come back to that theme repeatedly, um, both in this podcast and in other conversations I've had online and elsewhere about how you got to get the reps in, pick projects that will finish and do them, do more, do them and do them and do them. And eventually your skill set will come up. People are like, how do I break in? How do I get seen? How do I get known? And to me, the broad answer is step one is put in the work to get good. You don't start out good, you start out sucking. So get past that stage, put in the work to get past that stage, and then worry about getting people to notice you.
1: There's also a thing that's kind of interesting in the sound world. Like people like Mark Mangini, Tom Fleischman, uh, Skip Livesey, these guys, the top of the pops guys, they get to pick which project they work on. Yeah. People in the bottom get to pick which project they work on. When you go to a student film course, you can pick which ones. If you've, if you're going to give them your time, you get to pick which film seems most interesting to you to work on. When you're yeah. in that mushy middle... You get, you work on whatever gigs you can get, you know, like I don't get to pick to only work on super awesome triple A video games or something like that. I work on the gigs that I get and I make the best of, that I can out of them and don't misconstrue that as a complaint in any way. I love all the work that I do and it's amazing, but... There is kind of an awesome advantage of when you're starting out is that you do kind of get to pick your projects a little bit more than uh, people hire up a few rungs up above you. So take advantage of that and, like, f- fucking... Sorry, I don't want to swear and get the explicit <laughs> language tag on iTunes. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> take advantage of that and get out there and find projects that you're interested in and uh, pour your heart and soul into them and make them as cool as you can make them.
0: I, I would even you know to to riff on that even further i think it's a super important thing to actually be selective with the projects that you're, that you're diving into and that you are committing to, because whatever project you do decide to put in front of you and to commit to, you need to commit to getting that thing all the way to the end. You need to commit to final delivery of everything that you have said at the beginning that you are going to deliver. And what that means is that you're going to go through frustrations and you're going to have to overcome obstacles and overcome maybe picture changes and creative changes and, and, you know, creative interfaces with the, with the director that you may or may not agree with and, you know, you, it's going to have to to be worth it in the middle of it, in the depths of it. It's still going to have to be a project that is at least cool or interesting to you in some way. If you pick a project that you hate, then you're going to end up bailing on it when you run into the obstacles that inevitably show up um, midway through a project or sometimes early on in a project. And so you can't develop the routine of of picking projects and then bailing on them. You have to mm-hmm. pick projects that you know that you can fight through to get all the way to the end of, or at least that you have an idea that you can fight through the inevitable obstacles that will come up against you to get to the end of it and deliver it. And you can put your name on it and then you can move on to the next one that comes from being selective at the front end and picking projects and also picking people, um, that you can work with and, 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 Picking projects that you can work on and picking people that you can work with that you will be proud at the end of the process to say that, yes, I worked on this thing and I worked with these people.
1: Another thing that's along those lines is that finishing a project is a skill unto itself. Many, many people start projects and don't get them finished. So once you start finishing projects and you've got a bunch of short films, music videos, whatever it is that you're working on, finishing them is a skill unto itself, and that will start being noticed. Because there are tons of people out there who have reels of half-finished Man. things. And when you can throw out a resume that has definitive things that you finished, that you can prove that you saw through to the end, that is a skill unto itself that people will start noticing.
0: And that skill is developed like everything else through failure, right? By by trying things and and well and what happens is like you know so maybe it's not your fault that that the project um, yep. <laughs> halted midway through or was abandoned or whatever. But what happens is when those things start accumulating in front of you, you start noticing the red flags earlier and earlier. You start seeing, hey, this person is not gonna finish this. This person has no track record of finishing anything. Oh, hey, this project looks like the scope mm-hmm. is starting to creep, and if this scope creeps too much, then this thing's gonna end up getting a bit abandoned down the road. You learn those things through hard knocks, but you start to really develop the radar for what's gonna actually get finished and get put out there versus what's not. And you know, again, you learn it through failure, but, but it's an important thing to keep in mind as you're learning everything else are that, that you're going through the process of learning for sure
1: do we want to talk about demo reels that was mentioned in the question as well is that too, Dem- too deep a subject to get into this late in this episode
0: yeah it might be late <laughs> we went off on tangents and we went off on riffs there and we only answered four questions <laughs> but you know we we got an episode out so it was all good <laughs> four whole questions go team go well you know what it is that comes from also us not, not answering questions at, the, at every single episode. And so as, as we do more of these, I think we'll see more questions come in. We will practice what we preach. We will do the things that we want to see continue. And, and that'll be what that is. So with that said, thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to everyone who emails us questions and hits us up on Twitter and, and interacts with us in any way. We, we're thoroughly appreciative of everyone that, that takes a listen. We think it's way cool. Thanks to Stacy Dupas for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at the Tone Benders and go to tonebenderspodcast.com to leave a comment. You can support the podcast by shopping over at tonebenderspodcast.com slash Amazon or tonebenderspodcast.com slash BH. Thanks everyone. We'll see y'all next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to Tone Benders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to
1: tonebenderspodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at, info at ToneBendersPodcast.com. So Renee, before we go real quick, I have a Waves key that's on that super tiny uh, USB key. Okay. I unplugged it from the back of my computer to move <laughs> to my office, and I dropped it behind the computer accidentally behind the desk. Nice. So this desk is a IKEA hack desk that's got three <laughs> separate pieces. So it doesn't you can't just pull it out. It's like two sides and then a tabletop across the top and storing behind the desk are two wood panels that we bought when we redid our kitchen, and uh, we were gonna frame the refrigerator. So these two wood panels are boxed in with a really tight box. This GD USB stick fell into the one millimeter of space (laughs) that that box was not taped up, and went into that box. Now, both of these wood panels are eight feet long, And this (laughs) width of this room is nine feet long. So in order to get those panels out, I had to pull the desk like all the way back to the other side of the room. It took me 45 (laughs) minutes to find and retrieve this stupid USB key after I dropped it. And Uh, obviously I was in a freaking rush that day too. I was losing my mind with rage because I couldn't find it for the first half hour. And then when I realized where it was... And for that half hour, I was pulling my hair out. How could this thing have just disappeared? I was positive there was some kind of hole in the time-space continuum underneath my desk. And (laughs) it was enraging. And so I showed up 45 minutes late to a mix. Like, they started without me. They had all the files. But I just walked in, and I was vibrating with rage and anger over (laughs) this stupid USB key. So everybody out there listening, please Put some kind of uh, keychain or something on tiny USB keys so they don't disappear into the time-space portal. There you go. Anyway, yes, my that was my rage of this week so far. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe when I found where it was that it had found its way into this impossible spot to get out of. Anyway, that's my story for today.
0: Good times. High five.